Welcome to Lawali Life, the podcast. I'm Alice Law, your host and founder of Lawali Life, which is my coaching practice I've set up to help stress professionals and entrepreneurs to decrease, manage, and get rid of stress whilst improving their professional and personal performance. I take a very holistic approach to stress management, and this podcast is based purely around stress and loss and is a mixture of conversations with leaders in their fields from top CEOs, neuroscientists, authors, and other coaches and spiritual thought leaders guiding you through how they overcame their personal stress and losses and how you can overcome yours. I'm so unbelievably excited to introduce to you my guest today. It's the amazing Dr. Tara Swart, who really is truly an inspirational person. She has a PhD in neuroscience, is a former psychiatrist. She's a leadership coach. As a member of faculty at MIT Sloan, King's College London, was educated at Oxford and now also guest lectures at Oxford Business School. She is also an award-winning and best-selling author and has recently written a book and released it called The Source, which is all around the law of attraction, but the neuroscience behind the law of attraction. Today's conversation I enjoyed so much because it was about combining my two favorite things, which she also loves and agrees on, which is logic and spirituality. And I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Right, today we have the wonderful Dr. Tara Swart. Very excited to speak to you today, Tara. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. I'm so excited to speak with you. <laughs> no, it's great. Really, really excited because I love what you do combining neuroscience with a bit of spirituality and everything else you do. And it's just so, so exciting to talk to you about this sort of stuff because... I love logic and spirituality combined, so it's so exciting. Thank you. It was so nice to meet you and hear that you're interested in that. And since I met you, I've had conversations like that much more, and it's just really bringing everything together. It's sort of like my intention from before writing the book has just grown into something by itself. So I'm, you know, really looking forward to what we're actually going to talk about and how it's going to come out. Great. So your book, The Source, is amazing. And it's all about the law of attraction, but the neuroscience behind the law of attraction. So logic and spirituality, which I think is so important. So how did you come to be a neuroscientist who believes in the law of attraction? Well, I think it was maybe slightly the other way around in that I've got Indian parents. I was brought up Hindu. So I was brought up with things like meditation and yoga being completely normal. And I grew up vegetarian with an Ayurvedic diet and things like that. So those things were, you know, have been in my life forever. Um, When I was at school, I just wanted to be like my friends. So I kind of kept those things really separate and at home. And then um, I was at school in northwest London. So I just had tried to have as normal a life as possible um, with my friends. And then I went to medical school, which was something that my parents had really wanted. But it kind of grew that divide even further because then it was Western medicine and, you know, they believe in, in alternative medicine. So it felt like my life became a, was becoming a wider and wider fork. And I think it was really only when I had a personal and professional crisis that I managed to or needed to or wanted to bring those two things together. And that had such a magical effect on me that then I thought everybody needs to know about this I love that it's so true and so for you you say a personal crisis what is the greatest stress or loss that you've personally had to overcome so I would say it was a time of my life I was in my um mid-30s and I had I don't even know what came first but I decided to leave medicine so I'd only ever been at medical school or a doctor my whole adult life at that point 
Um, and I was getting divorced at the same time. And I was living and working in Bermuda, so I, I moved back to London to try... I thought being at home would be the easiest place to manage all that loss and change. But it was incredibly stressful. I moved countries. I had to find somewhere to live. I went from having been married for 10 years to being single. Um, and I went from being a really senior doctor to starting up a business from scratch that I had no network in. So it was, it was definitely very stressful. And it represented a loss of identity in several ways in that I had been someone's wife and that was a big part of my identity but more than that probably even um this the the sense of identity as a doctor so when people say what do you do which is often the first question that people ask <laughs> That's standard. people need to change that question I know. it's so annoying <laughs> I really try not to ask that because you know I've been through the experience of finding that awkward I, I, for years, like four or five years, would say that I was starting to become a coach, but I used to be a doctor. I couldn't stop saying that, even though I became aware that it, I was saying it as a sort of justification. Um, and a few years later, when I'd started up the business, but it was, you know, starting slowly, I actually couldn't afford to renew my medical license, so I had to let it go. I had no intention of going back, but that was the point at which I broke down and cried because I felt like I'd lost that forever. And so I was definitely no longer a doctor, but I wasn't really a fully functioning coach yet. And I remember walking across the street on a zebra crossing and thinking, I'm not a doctor, but I'm not a coach yet, so what am I? And then saying to myself with my former psychiatrist head on, if you're asking yourself what you are, this is a serious crisis. Um, And I guess the whole story of then drawing on the neuroscience and the spirituality to piece myself back together again. That's that's where it started, the what am I question. That's so interesting, isn't it? I love that you say that with the labels because it's so true that we identify with being either, if you're in a relationship, I'm a girlfriend, I'm a wife, or I'm a husband, or I'm a daughter, or I'm a doctor, I'm a coach. And it's so interesting how we tend to put our labels on instead of getting to the bottom of who we actually are identifying with certain labels why do why is that as a human brain why do we feel the need to do that do you know I've actually never thought about that before but you've just made me realize that I was way over identifying with those labels um and that probably caused me some of the stress that I then went through in the loss of those yeah um that's really interesting now looking back because I think ramping up the spirituality piece which I'd kind of separated myself from has has probably naturally helped me to move away from that so much that I'm actually a bit shocked to hear you know what we've just said that I was so identified with those labels I mean they're so meaningless that's so interesting you said that point just now, though, spirituality, because I so believe that that is what spirituality is, really just like disidentifying with all those labels, isn't it? So it must come from a more logical perspective of everyone, how we just love, love to do it. <laughs> I think it's, it feels very societal. I'm not sure if, if an individual would come up with those labels just for themselves, Um, If you think about, you know, some of the sort of spiritual conversations, there's a lot of talk about why do we even identify so much with our bodies rather than, you know, what we actually are inside. And I think having, you know, read about that and practiced around that, that thinking that you're identifying with something that's so outside you that says nothing about you as a person is is actually crazy. 
It's so interesting, isn't it? So how did you then, losing your identity at that time as you felt and being so stressed, how did you get through that period? Do you know what liminality is? No. So I didn't either. And then I read an amazing novel, like one of those ones that just makes you cry like the whole time. <laughs> so deep. Um, it's called Feeler's Child. It's actually a South African novelist. And she talks about liminality being a threshold. So where you're at the point that you're no longer ever going to be what you were again, but you don't yet know what you are going to be. That's such an interesting definite that's such a good thing to have a definition for because it's so true and it's such a cool word and it's actually a psychological phenomenon but I didn't know about it um and actually you and I had a conversation off record that was to do with liminality as well which was like I know what's happened but I don't know what's going to happen and that's uncertainty that we all fear but I think that you know the the reason I wrote the book is that I felt like People shouldn't have to get to a crisis point until they start to examine that stuff. I did, unfortunately, but it made me made me step back and really think, who do I want to be? What do I want to be doing? Who do I want around me? Um, and I naturally, I guess, because of the background that I had, you know, sort of put on the back shelf, moved towards Buddhist philosophy, Hindu philosophy, Jungian psychology, started reading a lot in those areas, was stunned by the overlap, started having those conversations with people, meeting new people because of it. And it just, I mean, it was like an epiphany. And that's when I, I think I started thinking, okay, psychology is definitely related to those sort of ancient Eastern philosophies and things. I could see that. But it still felt like neuroscience and medicine were not so much, or they were at the other end of the spectrum. But with you know, as scanning technologies developed and we understood more about neuroplasticity and how much you can change your brain, the psychology and the neuroscience became more connected and then everything became more connected. So that's a bit of a woolly answer, but it just, I understood things that I hadn't connected together before. I love that. And I think it's so interesting and so true when you say you don't have to get to a point of crisis to have you know, an epiphany. And it's such an important point because I feel like so many people these days in terms of stress, particularly feel like they have to get to the point of burnout to actually do something about it. And such a big believer in prevent rather than cure when it comes to stress. So why do you think that stress, for example, is such a association with success today? I mean, I really, I don't think it should be. And I don't think it is actually. Um, I totally agree with you that it, I, I, would not willingly allow myself to get to that point of burnout again. Obviously, anything can happen from left field, and I'm not saying I'm bulletproof. Um, I've definitely worked on my resilience. I think I was very lucky that at that low point in my life, I felt like I discovered a determination that I didn't know I had. So at times where I thought, I have to dredge into the bottom of the bucket and find something now to survive this new catastrophe, I began to find that I could. However, having been a psychiatrist before, I realised that there are definitely people who get to that point and they can't. And so, you know, the risk of being near that point and then not finding that energy to move forward is, is too great. And just because I found it before, I don't believe it means I could find it again. So, I, you know, I really want to protect myself from having to, to get to that point. So I just find it so alarming and disheartening when people say... I'm so busy, I don't sleep, I, you know, I 
travel so much I work 11 hours a day all, all those sorts of things and I work with you know sort of pe- very senior people in financial services and I'm I'm not frightened now at all to say to anybody that says something like that to me you must be doing something really wrong then and it's so true it's such a different quality non-quality of living really and I think it's such an important thing for you to say like you say you must be doing something wrong I say that with clients because you cannot continue to go on that way if you want to have a happy and fulfilled life at some point something has to give and it's Mm -hmm. either going to be you as a person or something in your outside peripheral totally it's so interesting so I don't know why people feel the need to associate stress and success in terms of I must be stressed to be successful because I must be seen as being busy and doing as much and it's so it's such a what's the word like juxtaposition of you know success in itself yeah I I am hearing more people saying it's not cool to be saying I'm so busy all the time I am but maybe I'm choosing to be in that group of people Um, I think it's the environment that we're in so for example in the financial crisis when you know a lot of people in society asked how people could be so greedy that they could cause a crisis for society like that. I actually said, if you had been incentivized in the same way as these people, you would have done the same thing. So I think if you're surrounded by people who say, I'm stressed and I'm busy and they're successful, you're going to naturally equate that in your mind and feel that you should be doing the same thing. And that's why my particular bugbear is the I only sleep five hours a night thing that way too many really high profile leaders still say, um, because that is so dangerous. I think it's really great that Ariana Huffington, who started Thrive, says how important sleep is because of that exact crisis, isn't it? Because she was a CEO, is a CEO, and then spoke to a lot of other CEOs after her. She fell down in her office, didn't she? Whacked her head unconscious. Woke up in a pool of her blood because she was not sleeping and on a sort of roller coaster of success. Yeah. And now sees it as such an important thing. And I think that's so interesting From from a neuroscience perspective. What is it exactly about sleep that co- in the brain that causes us to not function as well? How does that work? I find that so interesting. The whole sleep thing is super interesting. And it's actually some of it, the longer term stuff is now Nobel Science Prize winning research. So that's really exciting. Um, when the research came out around 2012 to, uh, and into the public domain around 2014, we knew that if you chronically disrupt your sleep, um, there was a correlation with getting dementia later in life. Wow. But it, really? they didn't say at the time that it was causal, but the research has now shown that it is. So that, you know, I cannot overemphasize the importance of sleep. You are playing with the earlier date of getting dementia symptoms. That, I mean, it's terrifying. Wow, that is so interesting. Also makes me laugh because I always used to say to my parents, because I am the sleeper of the family and I love a lion still to this day. I could sleep till 12 if no one woke me up. And my parents would always say, you're going to grow out of it. You know, I was like, guys, sometimes people need more sleep than others. And now if these studies are coming <laughs> out, I'm going to continue to say that. I'm exactly the same, but I will just say, just to be medically correct, that you shouldn't really sleep for more than nine hours a night unless you're a teenager. Damn it. Um, <laughs> But my, my stepson says, I've never known anybody sleep as much as you. So I'm definitely a, a, you know, a longer sleeper as well. And I, but I take it really seriously. And I'll tell you, the mechanism behind that research is the discovery of a system in the brain called the glymphatic system. So it's like the lymphatic system in the body that clears out waste. 
but it's because it's to do with glial cells in the brain. They named it the glymphatic system. It takes seven to eight hours to forcibly flush out all the toxins that build up in your brain, which is why you need to be in bed for seven to nine hours. That's um, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, after asking for so long, why do we spend a third of our lives sleeping and all this kind of thing, why do we need to sleep so much? We actually now know the answers. Um, so that process works better if you sleep on your side. So if you travel a lot like we do, for example, and you're jet lagged, I always just, if I wake up, turn myself onto my side. So I think, well, at least I'm doing something to improve it. But coming back to your question about the short term, shorter term effects of not sleeping, um, population norm studies, which means that, you know, it's looking at the, the biggest average group of people, not really the extremities, show that if you have any sleep disturbance overnight, you're operating with an apparent IQ loss of five to eight points the next day. Oh my God. I know. That is mind-blowing but that wouldn't so somebody like you that wouldn't show up at all you wouldn't really notice it nobody else absolutely nobody else would think oh she's not on form today but a whole night's sleep loss that could be a flight it could be that you weren't feeling well or you've got a young child whatever reason um in population norm studies that shows a standard deviation drop of iq and that would put all of us at below normal iq wow that is so interesting why is the nine hours thing, just quickly on the sleep, because I find this very interesting, why is it nine hours, not 12, <laughs> like I can possibly do sometimes? I mean, sometimes you need to catch up, but the catching up doesn't repair the deficits that you may have you know, introduced into your brain. So it's okay for the occasional lion if you've been a bit sleep deprived. But once you go to nine, 10 hours plus, it increases the risk of obesity, of diabetes, of heart disease. So you don't want wow. to be doing that. I mean, it's... That's much more correlated to people probably doing less exercise and eating more badly. So it's not just directly as a result of sleeping that long, but it's part of a lifestyle that's not probably conducive to health. That's okay. I'm going to try for the nine hours, not the 12. (laughs) That's so interesting. (laughs) Love a sleep tangent. So when we go back to stress, for example, when you are going through a stressful time, what's your practice for getting yourself through it or out of it or what do you advise other people to do in the morning for their minds I'm so hyper aware of this so I have like a few things that I I want want to tell you about because when you know I try everything on myself and then I just really want everyone to know about it so if you have a really really important event coming up like I had my US book release on October 15th I made a decision on July 15th, so three months in advance, that I was going to start preparing myself for that. I've, I've never done that before. I've never taken something that seriously that far in advance. But I gave up all alcohol at that point because it affects your sleep. Um, that has a knock-on effect on you, know, you the next day and, and your food choices and everything. Um, I started a quite intense supplementation regime. Now that I'm between trips, so having just recovered from jet lag and just about to go again, I'm doing a five-day immune protocol. I don't want to go too much into specifics because it's very different for different people, but um, you know the basics are a vitamin B complex, vitamin C, magnesium. I mean, we're all insanely deficient in that. The stats are 75% of people in the modern world. If you ever get that twitchy eyelid, you're deficient. Really? That's yeah. interesting. Would you say a magnesium bath is, is a good way to get it? Really, yeah, magnesium bath, magnesium foot bath, transdermal, so gels, oils, lotions, they're the best. That's not always practical, so capsule and tab- capsules or tablets are good too. 
And so that's the basic. And then, you know, if you add in probiotics, if you're traveling, omega oils, if you're trying to like build up your you know, brain health. Um, currently, I'm adding in the sort of um, immune mushrooms like reishi and shaga and shiitake and stuff. And more. I mean, I, you know, I take a lot of supplements. So, but I tend to change them around so that I'm getting different things. And I really listen to my body. So my sense of interoception, which is the physiological state of my body, I've really worked on building that up through yoga and journaling. What I do in the moment of stress, so through, like, let's say, a two-week stressful period, is I do a rundown of the rest... Um, hydrate, oxygenate, nutrition, and simplify. And so I try to get eight hours of good quality sleep as much as I can in that time. Um, I drink enough water, and that's that's half a litre for every 15 kilos of your body weight per day. So I read that in your book, and I found that really interesting because that's the first time I've ever, ever read that because you always get the average stat for you should drink what is it two liters of water a day or a liter and a half and it's just really interesting to know it's actually obviously makes sense it's to do with your weight yeah because that would be too much for you and I um it's unnecessary but to make sure you're drinking enough which most people aren't just lubricates all the chemical and electrical messages that your body needs to pass through you know the nerves and the cells and everything you'd never drive your car without making sure there's enough water in it but we expect to get through a period of stress <laughs> dehydrated yeah exactly i mean it's such a small thing so you can't always make sure you get eight hours sleep but you can make sure you drink enough water mm. you can make sure that you breathe deeply because when we're stressed we do shallow breathing so even if you can't get to you know the gym or a yoga class you can still breathe deeply and and hopefully you can try to make sure that you're, you're mobile you're not sedentary that helps so you know when I was in New York I walked an insane amount um I did manage to go to soul cycle as well which I was really pleased about but if I can't do that I just make sure you can see that I'm wearing the aura ring that I'm you know getting 10,000 steps the nutrition dense diet I'm you know sleep is the single most important factor but the one that you can sometimes control more is that apart from the supplements are extra that you're eating regularly that you're eating good food that's full of the nutrients that you need that you're not eating junk you're not skipping meals um all of the things that we tend to do when we're stressed right um including turning to caffeine and alcohol and you need to be doing exactly the opposite at your stressful times um and then the simplification is doing some formal mindfulness but it's also just really taking any extra decisions out of your day that you don't need to make at this time so you know you wouldn't start planning a holiday or you know learning a new language or something when you're really stressed so but take it further and ask yourself what sort of things are you spending time doing that you actually maybe don't really need to do at this point and that's why when I pack for a trip I do everybody's talking about it now but I've been doing it for a while I do like a color coordinated thing so I don't have to think as much about what I'm going to wear because everything goes with everything small thing but it makes a difference I love that it's really true about simplicity and I think we get so bogged down with all the insignificant but minor and major details of life and when we are stressed sort of attached to them so much so I think that's so interesting you say that from a neurological perspective Mm. it's really interesting and so so true so with your book the source I love that name for starters I think that's so great the source you say is within us and I love that because it really goes to the logic and the spiritual 
side. So how how does that relate, you know, both scientifically and spiritually for you? What is your view on the spiritual side of the law of attraction for starters? So it's so many things that you're saying are really like bringing new realizations to my mind. So actually just a really simple thing about the last topic was that when we're stressed, we tend to do like the opposite of what we need to do. So we overcomplicate when we need to simplify, for example. And so the source really simply is the potential that we all hold inside us. And most of us have not realized our full potential, which means that there's a bit more that we can do, a bit more that we can get out of our brains and our bodies, um, you know, more that we could be putting in to set ourselves up for success. So the law of attraction is, is interesting because what I boiled it down to from both the science and the spiritual side is that the way you think determines your life. That's been in New Age philosophy for a long time. But from my point of view as a neuroscientist, with the advances that we've seen in the last 20 years of how we can scan brains and see what happens when you have a certain thought or experience a certain emotion or take a risk, it's absolutely true that the way you think determines your life. And so suddenly it's like there's two, there's a spiritual and a really tangible way of, of seeing that statement. And I always thought, I've always, you know, I've believed in it for a long time, but I always thought it should be explained by cognitive science because it's previously been explained by quantum science, by vibrations, by, you know, field energy. And that has led to a lot of criticism of it being pseudoscience. And, you know, what I really want to do is, is use what I know to demonstrate that the spiritual idea of thinking abundantly, having affirmations and mantras of of being kind and generous, that that draws positive things into your life. And I will take it further, having looked at the laws of attraction. So I did some research over a summer holiday and there isn't actually really agreement over what all the laws of attraction are. So I distilled it down to six sort of themes that cover all the different laws of attraction that I could find. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and one of them is manifestation. So that is actually using your brain power to create the real world outcomes that you want so that's that's really taking it further than saying if you think positively you're more likely to have positive people around you and have a happier life to saying that if you use my stricter definition of the source which is using all of your brain power in an in a holistic and integrated way so your ability to master your emotions to listen to your body to trust your intuition to make good decisions so logic it's in there but it's not the most important one to keep yourself motivated that you can use all of that brain power to create the life that you desire um so that really is taking it a step further because it's saying that by using all of the ways of thinking that you have open to you you can make things happen in your life i love that and it's so so true i think anyone who hasn't well thought they haven't experienced the law of attraction actually has because you could have equally have attracted a sort of negative situation into your life as equally as you can attract a positive um and I'm obviously not saying the disasters and things that are fated because I've been part of those myself but I'm the everyday experiences it's really really interesting and I think yeah the spiritual side of the law of attraction is something that's been taught for so long but to have a scientific backup of it with your brain is something that a lot of people can can get on board with so I love that 
Yeah, and I think, I mean, you're almost a mind reader because I was just thinking about the negative aspect of it. And again, the the previous books on the subject have been massively criticised for saying, you know, that things like the Holocaust or terrible things that have happened to people are because of the way that they think. And I don't agree with that at all. Um, There are things that happen, of course, to some extent, it's how you deal with it. And using the example that I gave, there are amazing stories from the Holocaust of how people said... Um, you know that there's one thing that can't be taken away from me and that's the way that I think and I mean it's Victor Frankl yeah I mean it's incredible Um, but you do see a lot of negative manifestation in the world as well Mm. Um, and I you know I really again you know I wrote the book because I think if only you knew that there are some changes that you can make to who's around you who's not supporting you who's telling you certain things that could free you from some of that. You know, I would love to see people relieved of that pain. I saw way too much of it when I worked on psychiatric wards. Yeah, I love to think that's so interesting. But with oh, manifestation, yeah. what's your greatest manifestation that you've personally ever manifested? Um, well, this the story's in my book, and I'd have to say it's my marriage. And, and actually, my stepson is the greatest thing that I never manifested because I didn't... I didn't plan for that, but I've got an amazing relationship with him and I adore him. And that's that's really, for me, part of the story of leaving a bit of space for magic that you couldn't plan or think of. But my story with, with manifesting my marriage is that after my divorce, it was, like I, we've said, the most stressful um, period of my life. I swore that I would never, ever get married again because that was the only way I could guarantee that I would never have to go through what I'd been through again. And I kept that up for nine years, um, which is a long time. (laughs) Yeah. And I I absolutely was convinced that was the right thing to do. And then about seven years into that, I thought, maybe that's not very healthy. You know, I'm burying myself in work. I'm traveling an insane amount. Maybe I need to re-examine that, that I'm just using work to run away from that fear that, you know, that was embedded in me at that stressful time. So... In um, for, for my 2014 vision board, I put a tiny heart on the board and it was still all about business and travel. I'd been doing vision boards for about nine or ten years by then. And sure enough, at the end of the year, nothing had changed. And that's when I thought, you know, I didn't commit to it and that's why it didn't change. And if I really want to manifest this, I've, I've got to go all out. And I was reading the FT and there was a, um, a picture, an advert for, with an engagement ring. And it was... It was large. It's not because I wanted a large one, it's just because it was a very bold statement and I thought, that is going on on my vision board. And then, I don't normally have words on it, but I saw an advert that said, joy comes out of the blue, and I felt very attracted to that statement. So I put that on... I like that statement. Yeah. Um, It's on the top centre of my vision board from 2016, and the engagement ring was on the left, because that's to do, like, your heart's on the left and everything. Um, So I made that board in December 2015... In February 2016, I was on a flight from Joburg to London, so in out of the blue, in the sky. I met my husband-to-be, who's now my husband. Oh, God, I just got shivers. <laughs> that is out of the blue in the sky. I know. That's amazing. Know. That's um, so great. He was someone who'd said he'd never get married again and hadn't been married for 17 years or something at that point. And later that year, we got engaged. 
Oh, that's such a great manifestation. <laughs> just out of the blue in the sky, but as a sentence to then meet him out of the blue in the sky yeah. on an aeroplane. I just think that's so great. Thank you. <laughs> Love that. Um, uh, so with you and um, manifesting for you, what's your best sort of process every day that you would say to someone if they're just going to do one process every day to try to manifest something with the law of attraction bring something into their life or some kind of vision what would be your one tip for people it would be to make a vision board but I actually call them action boards because my my sort of doubts around a vision board are that people make something that's too fantasy based and they'll create a collage and then just wait for it to come true so an action board is more short term. It's more about the next year of your life. It, it can be dream big, but it's got to be somewhat realistic. And you have to do things all the time to try to make it come true. Um, so, you know, they can be as intangible as in my example that I just I was more open to a romantic relationship than I'd been for a very long time. Or they can be really tangible in terms of going freelance or building up your own business that, you know, you know what you have to do to progress that, however small, whether it's just networking or going on a course. But, you know, I mean, I watched that movie, The Secret, and there's a scene in that where somebody unpacks in their new home and finds a vision board from years ago that's that same home. Um, Wasn't that Jack Canfield? Yeah. Yeah, I loved that. I thought that was so... I mean, that is amazing. Some of those stories, which is true... Jack Canfield, for people listening who don't know, who's one of the big American self-development people, and he's incredible, one of the sort of the originals, and he did have a vision board, like you say, with a picture of a home on it, and it's now the home that he happens to have managed to buy just out of chance. Yeah, years later, he'd forgotten about the vision board. But a small version of that happened to me when I was looking for my... to buy my first flat on my own after getting divorced... Um, I picked out particular pictures of kitchens and bathrooms and things that I liked. And the kitchen had an orange wall, which I didn't like, but I liked everything else about the kitchen. And when I found my flat, the kitchen had an orange wall, which I immediately painted when I moved into it. But I was sort of like, wow, that's specific. That's so interesting. Yeah. I love that. So that's the spiritual side of law of attraction and there's the logical side. So for you, what's the logical side? What does the logical side mean to you? Is it that the brain has the electric currents which, you know, fire off and that will, you know, you attract, therefore your brain looks for what you you need to attract because it's sort of getting familiar with it? Or what what is that? Yeah, there are actually two processes in the brain called selective attention or filtering and value tagging. And because we're bombarded with so much information all the time, like everyone you meet, everything you see, everything you hear, every memory that you recall, every emotion you experience, we're, of course, naturally filtering out things because, you know, it's like you don't feel the clothes on your body all day. We filter stuff out. And if you are just holding down the day job, trying to have some work-life balance, no time to step back and reflect you're not choosing what you're filtering out. Mm. If you journal and you create a vision board and you look at that vision board every day, preferably before you go to sleep when your subconscious is more suggestible, then you're priming your brain to notice and grasp opportunities that might otherwise have passed it by. Because once we filter stuff out, we then prioritise in order of importance the things that we've decided to keep in, and that's called value tagging. And if you're repeatedly looking at this image 
then when you notice anything related to it, when you're just, you know, walking down the King's Road, then you're more likely to, to act differently because you've actually noticed it. Um, or even just to feel motivated because you've noticed something. And I want to mention something to you that I had this amazing conversation yesterday. I've kind of heard about it before, but because I'm really interested in like ancient cultures, because that's where the spirituality mm. piece comes from for me. Native American Indians have say that the way that we have defined how time works is fine. That's a, you know, it's a paradigm that we've created, but it's not necessarily a fact. And so coincidences and deja vu and serendipity are based on the fact that time doesn't work in the way that we think it does. And although that's currently a spiritual belief, I think it's going to be just a matter of time till that gets looked at scientifically. And, I, you know, I've always said science fiction is just science that hasn't been proven yet. So for me, spirituality and science are now on a spectrum. They are not two poles like I felt they were before. And when you believe that, amazing things happen. What does spirituality mean to you? It, so I'm going to answer this question in a really logical way, <laughs> which is that I, I look at things through, in four quadrants, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And because that word doesn't suit everyone, I either say, you know, if you don't want to use the word spiritual, you can say values-based or in your integrity or in your spirit. But actually, I say it's something that can't be explained by the other three. So it's not something you feel in your body. It's not something that you can rationalize with your thoughts and it's not something that is limited only to your emotions it's something other than that but and you know even I was careful to say other than bigger because I think it's both I think it's something other than that in you and I think it's something bigger than that in that we're not islands yeah you know we're we're connected through what some people call a collective consciousness and whether you are choosing to be tapped into that or not, I think that's what spirituality is, that you're, you're something other than your body or the person, you know, or how you think, and that we're part of something greater. Yeah, I love that. That's such a good definition. Because it's so interesting, because I always ask that, because it means something different to everyone, but what everyone always seems to come back to is that in their own way, they believe they're tapped into something that's collective or greater. And it's really, it's really interesting. I didn't know you were going to say that, obviously, and I cannot wait to listen to this podcast series, but that is so interesting. And another conversation that I had recently was how many physicists and other scientists at the end of their life end up being very spiritual. So they move away from matter to something that's much more intangible and there's got to be something in that too and it's definitely happening to me in my life you know I I have a PhD in neuroscience and a medical degree from Oxford and I'm a professor at MIT I mean you could not be more typically in the logical sector <laughs> exactly. but I'm not <laughs> which is why it's such an interesting book and why it's so interesting to talk to you because it's it, I love I just I'm such a believer in logic and spirituality mm. combined because I think that's the key to living the greatest life you can yeah. because you can't be walking around not to offend people but you can't walk around being all woo-woo spiritual with no back basis for decision making and goals and, and logic but mm -hmm. equally if you're just thinking logically and you don't have room for 
the magic and connecting to something mm. then that's not great either as no I no I love the way you put that you've put that beautifully like you've put what I feel into words I've never said it that succinctly um but I was thinking about the subheading in my book where it said this is not blind faith but this is faith in science and that's kind of what you've said that it's it's both you can't well you can but if you live just in one or the other it's monodimensional and you're missing out on a huge part of life yeah I so believe that I like to call it being spiritually rational Mm. I think it's kind of (laughs) <laughs> combines both as much as possible definitely sounds better than being spiritually irrational <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> spiritually spiritually irrational yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> so when someone isn't seeing what they want manifest why do you think that is what's your sort of reasoning behind that because I think that's really interesting because a lot of people do suddenly have these moments don't they They're like this isn't working for me mm-hmm. law of attraction manifestation whatever they're trying might not be working so what, what would you say is the reasoning I have a theory of that that's a very strong felt anecdote um, I can't actually give you the science behind that right now that it doesn't exist yet um, so when I left medicine um, and I was on my coaching course a friend very kindly gave me a job for the six months that I was on the coaching course and at the end of that there came the opportunity to either leave and start up on my own and I had a small amount of savings but that was terrifying or to stay on in the job. And I think just because I, you know, my whole life had fallen apart and was unstable, I just wanted some security. Yeah. And I said, I, I want, I really want to stay in the job. And she said, I, I don't think it's right for you. She said, as your friend, I'm, I'm saying to you, I don't think you should. Um, and I know that you can do anything that you put your mind to, but I was just too scared. So... I said, no, 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 I, I, want, I want the job. And then I got some coaching on my coaching course and they got me to close my eyes and visualise this job. And all I could see was a massive black mountain that I couldn't see the top of, that I couldn't even try to climb because it was just going to be never-ending. And every time they said, see yourself successful in this job, making it work with your colleagues, whatever they said, all I could see was a big black mountain. And I fully believe that if it's not meant for you, you can't visualise it. And so if you keep coming up against a brick wall, metaphorically, you might need to rethink what you're trying to manifest. Yeah, I love that. I think that's very, very true because it also goes into the synchronicities, isn't it, that people experience spiritually, that when you are in that flow of mm. manifestation, that mm. things happen that you just can't explain. Exactly. <laughs> logically. And that is the universe, whatever you want to call it, its way of mm. pointing you in the right direction and showing you you are moving in the right direction. Yeah, and I think if we do want to try to bring a bit of scientific balance into it, I agree, you know, I, I'm comfortable using that word, the universe, but for people that aren't, then I think it's your intuition. So, Mm. you know, there's a lot more... With scanning of bodies and brains, we can see the connection between the gut and the limbic part of the brain. And so even in my story, it was very fear-based, wanting to take, you know, the wrong road. That was fear. Um, And at that point, I hadn't honed my intuition as much as, you know, I've worked on doing it now over the last 10 or 12 years. Um, So I think if you really can take that time to step back, reflect, listen to your intuition, you'll know what you really want to do. Even if you're afraid of it, you'll know what it is that you really want. And and that's what I think people, you know, should give themselves the the luxury of doing if they can. Yeah, I love that you say that because I'm such a believer in intuition and 
I always work on intuition with clients because with stress, I think your intuition can get really, really (laughs) smashed around and people don't listen to it when they're in a state of high stress. Mm -hmm. So for intuition, I I believe everyone has one, but just not everyone is tapping into it. What would you say is the best practice to tap into intuition daily? Well, I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but I think it's journaling. But I'll I'll take that a little bit further. Um, Two things. One, you said everyone has intuition. I agree with you to an extent, but because it's based on life experience, it naturally improves with age because you've got more stories in the background to, you know, use for pattern recognition. So that's all. It's not that younger people don't have it, but they've got less stories to compare to. So it's like having a smaller library to do research (laughs) in. Um, But the journaling is for honing your intuition. It's not just writing, it's reading back over it. That was a game changer for me. So I read back over six months of my journal at one point, And that's when I saw in my own handwriting that I was writing the same thing, but I was not listening to it. Um, that's so interesting, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And there's, there've been other times where I've written, this is what my gut's telling me, but I'm not sure. And if it turns out to be true or if, you know, and then I read back and I think I knew, I knew all along, um, And whether it's fear or logic that tries to override that, I think it's really important for people to be able to separate that and listen to that voice separately, whether you choose to act on it or not. The next stage is journaling your decisions, whether they're based on logic or intuition and seeing how that pans out. And in in yours and my coaching, I would say nudging people in the direction of feeling braver around the intuition decision rather than the logic one. Yeah, it's so interesting because there are so many examples, you know, even, you know, me personally, everyone that's experienced when they've gone against their intuition and something either bad has happened or something has then come out of it where you're like, I knew knew that was the case, I shouldn't have done that or I should have done that and now I'm back in the position where I was or where I would have been had I followed it back then. And I think it's such an important thing to strengthen as much as possible every day and do you find I don't want to ask too leading a question but the the case in which I find that happens the most and people don't want to listen to it unless you actually record how many times it's happened is that first nagging feeling you get that you shouldn't be in the relationship that you're in yeah that's that's definitely a um one I've noticed either with people you know or I've had that in a previous relationship before when I was younger when I thought, hmm, but then you just don't do anything about it and you ignore the intuition and then life takes over for you and does something for you. <laughs> it's for you yourself. Yeah. And so it's definitely, I think that's such a good example. It's when people, it's like you're not saying, as someone was talking about that in an interview, who was it? Oh, I can't remember, but it was, they were saying, I'm not telling you to, you know, go and just break up with the person when you have that first feeling, but you really need to look a little bit more into Mm. why you're having that feeling and what Mm. kind of issues are surrounding it exactly i love that it's very very good example very true (laughs) i think a lot of people will resonate with it that's the point and then that helps people to think okay where else in my life could i be applying this it's a good place to start because it's something we've all been through so you talk about relationships then at the beginning of your book you reference the dedication is to your husband and your stepson and you say your husband is your twin flame which I love because I believe in twin flames I find that really interesting so 
What is your definition of a twin flame? Um, first of all, I want to say that, you know, what it took for me to write that in public, knowing that everybody was going to read it, was big. Um, because I had not previously shared that spiritual side. Um, and, you know, it's a bold statement and it leaves you very open to people scrutinising you to see what's going to happen. So I thought very, very carefully about including it. Um, so it's an interesting story because I've, you know, when I was doing my soul searching, I looked into all this. And so a lot of people talk about soulmates. And because I was brought up Hindu, um, I believe in reincarnation. And so I believe that a soulmate is a soul that you meet through several lifetimes. So it may, you know, you may not necessarily in a romantic relationship, but you've been in each other's lives before. And so that feeling of meeting someone and feeling like you've known them for ages, that's the soulmate feeling. Um, a twin flame, the definition that I've read is beautiful, but I'll tell you what I think it means. So the definition is of a soul that becomes so full of love that it splits into two. So you're actually two halves of a of one soul, which I mean, it's just so amazing. And I think what it means and what, and I have to say, I'm still, I'm very much still on a personal development journey, but my husband is the most tolerant, most unconditional person that I've ever known in my life. And I think a twin flame is the person that lets you be on your journey and be yourself, no matter what it means to them. I love that. That's so, I love that. That's such a good definition because... I think it's really interesting, like you say, with the soulmates, because who was it? Elizabeth Gilbert was giving her definition of soulmates once on um, Oprah's podcast. And I found that so true and so interesting that everyone has this um, Hollywood fantasy theory about a soulmate. Yeah. Oh, I must meet my soulmate. And when it is, it's amazing. But she said a soulmate actually in, in terms of um, lessons and spirituality, you can have soulmates, like you say, her friends who whoever you know different types mm. of soulmates not mm. romantic but then that a romantic soulmate she was like they're not always the relationship you want to have they are quite often the relationship that makes you grow the most oh, yeah. and sends you on your way to doing what you want to do or you know it's really really interesting she said they'll you know really shake you to your core and oh, send you right. on your way and I was like well I think I've experienced one of those actually myself and I think it's really interesting because you're yeah. not meant to end up with them but it's yes my friend Caroline told me that actually but that's given me goosebumps and it's given me that like feeling in my heart that that's just so true and like growth is is like such a gift but it doesn't always seem like the Hollywood fantasy of romance yeah exactly but twin flame, I like that. That's such a nice, such a nice one. So just coming back to your book, because I found it so interesting with um, self-awareness, you talk about a lot mm -hmm. with emotional intelligence. And I'm such a believer that emotional intelligence is as, if, no, more important actually than IQ and intellectual intelligence. So how important do you think it is to be emotionally intelligent towards getting the life that you want? I think it's like, a million percent important and and even the reason that you stumbled over your words as you asked the question is because society has massively overrated logic and put it on a pedestal and basically said that emotions and intuition don't mean anything yeah <laughs> I, I do I do think that we're coming out of that to a certain extent I've certainly seen that in the last 10 years that that's changing and hopefully improving but you know our reliance on logic is is way too much um and if you think about what's actually really made us successful, made us the most 
you know, successful animal on the planet. It's that added layer of emotional intelligence. Um, so for getting what you want and for interacting with other people, you have to be able to acknowledge and articulate how you feel emotionally and, you know, what other people are going through emotionally. So, but I think it means a lot more than that. You know, it's being connected, it's having a sense of belonging, it's being compassionate and kind and, you know, practicing gratitude, all those good things. It's actually... It should be so easy to answer that question, but it's it's complicated, and that's why mastering your emotions is is one of the you know the trickiest things to do. But I put it at the top of my list in the book mm. of the six ways of thinking. Um, I believe it's the absolute key to getting what you want, and I, I've been saying that for a long time. But I think now with the rise of AI, that emotional intelligence, intuition, and creativity are more obviously more important than ever. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, because you don't... I mean, how can you put it into... Um, it goes on a different tangent, but how can you put those intuitive and emotional capabilities into, you know, AI in the same way that a human can? And it's such an interesting point. You can only take it to logic, really, as far yeah. as you can. I love that. What's one book that's inspired or changed you the most on this great journey of experience? I love it. <laughs> I read a lot. I love reading. But the one book I would have to say is The Master Key System by Charles Hanel. Oh, I've never heard of that. Great. Oh, I love reading new books. Um, It's very, very old. It came out in the 19... It was either 1916 or 1921, but it came out as a series of newspaper columns and then got made into a book later. I mean, you can't even buy it. You have to buy it on, like, Amazon Marketplace. It's out of print. But you can get it on Kindle. And it's... So it's a series of... Um, a bit of theory with a practice at the end of each. And it, when I did it, it took six months. So it's, you know, a lot of practices. It's basically types of meditation. Um, it changed my life, but it inspired me to write my book because it was in very old-fashioned language. It was a bit too dogmatic and judgmental for, I think, what's, you know, now, going to be... yeah. yeah. Um, and I wanted to write something that was totally secular and not based on you know, religion or, um, so I read it years ago and then I came back to do the practices when I, you know, when I had my crisis. Um, and that was the book that taught me for sure that the way you think determines your life and everything that's turned around in my life since then has, I'm convinced has been because I did the practices in that book, but I'm hoping that my book is the modern day version of that. And you can just, just do the practices in my book. No, I love that. Cause that's what I love about your book is that it does have the practices for people that have just very simply put and just mm. go and do them and mm. put it to work and see how it works out. For yeah. you, which is so great. So on that statement, which is so true that your thoughts do create and change your life. If you have to live into one intention or thought or mantra every day for you to achieve and be positive and stay on track, what is that intention that you like to live by? I mean, the biggest intention that I live by is abundance. Um, So that's the belief that we're not in competition for resources. There's enough out there for everyone. And that the more you give, you know, whether it's in kind thoughts or love or actual things that you give the better your life will be. I love that. It's so true. I read somewhere the other day, there's no competition in creativity because creativity is limitless. And I thought that was such a good statement. It's like what you're saying. It's so true. 
very very good to practice <laughs> Tara thank you so much for joining today it was such a great conversation it was great having you it was amazing thank you Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode on the Lawali Life podcast. If you are enjoying all the guest interviews, then please hit subscribe and download what we already have available and tune in for next week's amazing guest so we can continue to bring you more amazing people from around the world to help you with your own personal stresses and losses and how to get through them. Stay tuned.